jar full? Yes. And is it full now? How about now? Is the jar full now? Yes. Now I want you to recognize that this jar represents your life. Golf balls are the important things, your family, your friends, your health, and your passions. The pebbles are the other important things, your car, your, your job, your home. The sand is everything else. It's just the small stuff. Now if you put the sand in the jar first, you won't have room for the pebbles or the golf balls. The same is true in life. If you spend all your energy and your time on the small stuff, you won't have time for all the really important things that matter to you. Pay attention to the things that are critical to your happiness. Take care of the golf balls first, the really important things. Set your priorities, because everything else is it's just sand. So this morning, I want you to think about in your life as we move forward in this message about things that are important to you. So um, we've been talking about over the last uh, few weeks, Pastor Gary's talking about the core values of things that are here at Berean, things that Berean believes are core and are essential things to the life of this church in this area. And so he talked about uh, biblical authority. He's talked about last week, intentional discipleship. And so I, when you think about cores, right, cores are the essential things, right? I think cores are a lot like integrity. It's the integral part of the makeup of who we are. And so that's kind of what when you think about, you think about biblical authority and intentional discipleship, that's the core, the things that are important to us that make us up. And so today we're going to be talking about relational ministry as one of our core values. And let me read to you what our statement says about this. It says, we believe life is intended by God to be lived in relationship. If you believe that, say, I do. Good. We are committed to helping people make and build relationships that are life-supporting and life-changing through the power of Christ. Berean Church should be a place where people find help and hope and lasting friendships. I hope you believe that. And so I want you to think about this morning that when we talk about the core values and that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks and that we'll be talking about in, over the next few weeks that these things are going to have some overlap. You're gonna see biblical authority and intentional discipleship as a part of relational ministry. You'll see others connecting in as well. There's going to be overlap in aspects of both relationships and ministry, okay? Now, you're going to also encounter some tension, right, in learning to strike a balance between relationships and ministry. Here's what I want you to see, that there's, the type of ministry that is out there called what I would refer to as drive-by ministry, right? And drive-by ministry is more about ministry and less about relationships. Those are the people that are just out there to just unload whatever truths they have to unload and then feel like, they, they, like their conscience is clean, right? Okay? And, I've, and, and, and I'm not saying I've ever seen anybody here have this. 
But if you've ever seen a car out there where their, their back of their trunk is riddled with scripture and how the rapture's coming, and if you believe it's hot, like in Florida, Hades is hotter, right? We've seen that before. How many have seen something like that before? Okay, now the problem with that is even if those scriptures are true and we believe that they are, there's no relationship to that, right? That person in the car might be a great person and just not communicating the best way. Ministry happens out of relationship. It's gotta be more than just drive-by. Then there's the second one that I would call the social club ministry. This is more about relationship and less about ministry. And I'm for parties and I'm for having a good time. But when we think about ministry, um, we can't just be all about relationships only. At some level and at some point, there needs to be a ministry component. There has to be moments where you give um, life-changing access to people and helping them. So my goal for us this morning is this, that we would together see relational ministry not just as the core of a place that we attend, but that we would absorb this value as a part of our core so that wherever we are on the ladder of relational ministry, that we would move a rung higher. My goal is that we all take that in and see that it's important and take a step higher. And so there's a few things that I want us to think about as we think about relational ministry, how to get higher. And the first one is about focus. Turn to your neighbor and say, focus is hard. And it is hard because there's a lot of squirrels, right? There's a lot of things that get us distracted from being focused on what's important. So when focusing is hard, we need to remember the destination. So I was thinking about this. How many things can we focus on effectively? Right? So there's actually been study and research done in this area about how many people or things that we can focus on. And so here's what um, the University of Oregon has said. These are, are actual studies. And researchers have concluded from the University of o Oregon that the, the most that people can focus on at one time effectively is the number, anyone want to guess? One, one, you, got, you guys are good. Actually, it's four. They, after research, they've said four is the number, okay? And here's what they said. Researchers have concluded that the human brain is built, has a built-in limit on the number of discrete thoughts it can entertain at one time. The team has also found a strong link between short-term memory capacity and intelligence, so people with higher IQ can think about more things at once. But here's what it also said, that even though these people with higher IQs can think about more things at once, there's no guarantee how good those memories might be. So you might be like, man, I'm so smart, I can think about more things. But if you really listen to what they're saying is, you might be able to think about more things, but you can't trust your memory. So there's a balance. In fact, another uh, place of scienceabc.com did it also, they did a study. And here's what they said. They said, to put it plainly, multitasking is scientifically impossible in the way that we think about it. 
because it simply isn't how our brains are designed to work. Our prefrontal cortex is the control center of our brain when we attempt to focus on something. And it's, li- when it's linked to both halves of our brain and it coordinates other areas of, of our brain that are necessary for attention and the achievement of set goals. So with the massive amount of computing power in our brain, it's natural to assume that our cortex can independently handle two tasks, but that isn't the case. When you attempt to tackle more than one task, it may seem like you're focusing on two, three, or four at once, but in fact, your brain is just shifting focused extremely rapidly. For a healthy brain, this shift can happen almost instantaneously, leading people to believe that they are juggling numerous tasks when in fact people are just changing focal points for their brain in a matter of milliseconds. So they've, they've said there's two things that you need to think about when we think about this idea of focus. The number one is goal shifting is the stages of focus. That's jumping from one to another that happens really quickly. But the second one is really important that we need to grab and it's called rule activation. It says the brain needs to move away from the rules required to complete a task like driving, eating, walking, um, and talking, and then gather the rules required for the next task to continue. Gathering the necessary information and data regarding the new task may take a long time, particularly as we're getting older. So resetting for the second task is actually quite inefficient. In other words, when you shift your focus onto something else, your brain says, I gotta gather the rules for whatever else I'm focusing on in the second thing while you're still trying to think about the first thing, right? So we'll come back to that in just a minute. So this idea of focus that we have, right, and we need to stay remembering the destination all comes around this one word I would suggest to you, and that is priority. And priority is primary. In fact, Forbes Business said this, the big rocks are your priorities. They're the tasks, the project, the goals that you absolutely have to accomplish. They are the mission-critical objectives that you need to have, right? But here's what they said, that people tend to run into three problems when they think about their priorities. One is they have too many priorities. Two is they do not or cannot differentiate the truly important priorities. And for any number of reasons, number three, they let other less things, less important things, get in the way of focusing on what really matters. Now, when we think about the word priority, listen to this. The word priority entered the English language via French, the old French word, and sometime in the 14th century, deriving from the medieval Latin word prioritas, meaning fact or condition of being prior. The word meant the most important thing. It's the thing with precedence. But here's what you need to grab. When the word was first coined, the word priority, there was no plural. You could only have one. Do you know that's biblical? Only one. Do you know what that one is? It's Christ. On this rock, I will build. It's Christ. You lay a solid foundation. There is only one big rock that scripture says that we can have as priority in our life if we don't want to sink in the sand and that's the foundation of Jesus. It just is. It's the one, the number one. 
right? It's the primary focus. That's why Paul said this. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the mark of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the one. It's the one. Turn to your neighbor and says, it's the one. It's the one big rock. Now, when we think about core values, those are like the secondary rocks that orbit the one big rock, right? And so here's what I want you to think about. What value do you place on a person's life? Now, before you give that answer, I want you to think about your relationships and the interactions that you have, not just with the ones around you, but everyone. How do you value a person's life? As temporal or everlasting? Now, I listened to a, um, it was the president of our Bible college years ago, and he preached a message on the value of a soul. And it was one of the most profound messages that I can remember in my college experience. And he read out of this one verse three weeks in a row. And I'm going to share it with you. This is out of the book of Revelation, chapter 18. You're seeing in 18, the fall of Babylon, and the whole world system is falling apart. It's disaster city. And here's what it says. And the merchants of the earth shall weep. They mourn over her. For no man buys their merchandise anymore. Their merchandise of gold, silver, precious stone, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, and all manners of vessel of ivory, and all manner vessels of the most precious wood, and of brass, and iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves. And here's the last few words of that verse, and the souls of men. Think about that. The divinely created human life has become a commodity among people. Take something that God has intended to have priority of everlasting value, and we treat it just like a commodity, merchandise. It matters how we value people. Do we see these people as having an everlasting soul? We need to start seeing people more than just as who they are, but whose they are and where they are going, right? And so there's been times in my life where people have asked me, why aren't you just cutting ties and writing people off? And how is it that you cannot just get to the place where they are, where they're just saying, like, I don't want to have anything to do with that? And I'm not saying people love in close relationship, but even people that you can even see in the media that just, uh, that have made really bad decisions. You know why it's hard for me? Because that soul matters to God. And if that soul matters to God, it should matter to me. It should. And I never really experienced how, how, how powerful you can feel about that when I was in Bible college and they had a super Walmart there and I was going to Walmart for whatever reason um, that day and I was standing in the exit, right? And as I'm standing there in the exit, 
uh, something happened. It was like for a moment, like time stood still. Like I was just like in this like vortex. It was a God moment. And I was standing in the exit and I just saw all of these people just coming at me, going, exiting, right past me. I mean, there was tons of them. And I was thinking about the value of a soul and how these people are just going, like where it talks about narrow is the path to life and broad is the way to destruction. That is what I felt like in that moment. All of these people are going somewhere and most of them are probably going in the wrong direction. It was an overwhelming feeling like I am responsible. I have to do something. I have to do what I can. And if we value people as anything less than what God values them, we're off mission, right? Our life has to be more than just us reaching for the goal of the prize in Christ Jesus. We have to see that other people are still in need of reaching toward that goal too, right? They're supposed to get there too, and how can they get there unless we help them, right? So values drive passion, what we value. Think about this. David's three mighty men valued their king, and it drove them to cross enemy lines for a cup of water. They value the king, and it drove them to do something that most people would say, that's crazy. Jesus valued people. It drove him to a woman at a well. It drove him to have dinner with a wee little man. It drove him to the lakeside after the resurrection to recover a disciple that was floating adrift. Why? Because he valued them and that value drove him to those people. So, come back to the rule gathering. Here's what I think. That ineffective rule gathering is a huge factor when our focus is divided about a person. Here's what I mean. That I think we struggle to see people and the souls of men as they are because our hurts, our busyness, our worries, all of the things, our offenses, our wounds, they get in the way. And when we start focusing on those things, all of a sudden we forget the rules. And we think about the rules of why I'm justified or why my hurts matter more than that person. They hurt me. And I'm not denying that. But I'm saying in our hurts and in our problems and in our inabilities and in our worries and all of that, don't forget that person has a soul and they matter to the king of kings. They do. And this is why relationships are important. And if you haven't guessed it already, relationships are hard. Turn to your neighbor right now and look at him and say, I've been difficult once or twice. Now, I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot of laughter in this room. I already knew that. And do you know why? Because once or twice is a low estimation right? <laughs> we know that, okay? Now, we know relationships are hard, so what do we have to do in response? We have to be deliberate. It's been said, right, that ministry would be easy if it weren't for all the people. 
But here's the truth. Life would be easy if it weren't for all the people. I bet you already knew that. But here's another truth. Healthy ministry requires relationship, right? Here's another truth. Most people cannot separate relationship and the minister. Now, I'm just going to be totally honest for a moment. I have not always been the easiest person to deal with. And I've made mistakes. And so when I was in Ames, youth pastoring in Ames, one of the the tasks that I was given was to find a company that um, was supposed to help design a new sign for the front of our, our building. So I did. I found a company. I couldn't even tell you what the company is today. And I, I told them what we were looking for. We weren't going to spend a lot of money, but we just needed something to freshen it up. So when people drove by. And so this company said, well, we'll do that. And so they said, give us a, a week or two and we'll get something back to you for a design concept. So a week or two goes by and I contact them and say, hey, you got anything for us? No, we've just been really busy, lots of stuff. We'll, we'll get to it. Okay, no problem, just checking in. Another two weeks go by. Hey, we're really swamped and it's not, it's not working, and, but we're going to get there. You're still on our, on our radar. We're, we're going to get your, your designs for you. Okay. Thanks, Dave. That wasn't his name, by the way. It's just the name I gave him in the moment. So I waited a couple more weeks, received something, an email from him, and got the design. And I'm not kidding you. It was like clip art, just over our old sign. You could see our old sign and what he did, it was just like two lines over it. So I called him and he said, what'd you think? And I said, I think if you didn't want our job, like the work, you shouldn't have said yes. I mean, honestly, I mean, like I, and I told him this. I said, I know that you're busy. But if you did not want to um, take our job and, and treat it with the utmost importance, then you should have said so. And you've got other, other businesses that I can guarantee they're paying you more money than what we're paying you. So if you didn't want the work, you shouldn't have done it. What do you mean? I said, listen, I could have done what you did in two minutes. Done. And I told him, now this is the part where I make mistakes, people. <laughs> so I told him, I said, I just want you to know that you've given me a gift. And I'm going to take this gift and share it with everybody I know. And the next person that I, I contact with and um, ask them to give us a bid on a sign, I'm going to show them this and say, this is exactly what I do not want. <laughs> now, I was mad, okay? I was justified, right? All of those things are true. But just because you're justified doesn't mean everything is beneficial. And I've learned something. Sometimes we say when we deal with people, it's just business. But people, I've found, have a really hard time separating the person from the business. It just doesn't work. Very often, few people can do that. They just can't. So it matters when we think about relationships, right? Because people cannot separate 
the relationship from the person of God, right? Now, I could have said to that person, I could have said something like, you know what? This just isn't going to work out. Thank you for your time. We're going to explore other options. That would have been a better choice, a more beneficial choice. But sometimes you learn by doing, right? It just happens. And so when we think about relationships, I want you to think about this. There's no substitute for human contact. If anything proved this uh, model right here, it was our COVID season and rebounding following that. And so one of the things that I read an article during the COVID season about when we weren't able to have human contact is that they found that this, and maybe they knew this before then, but they found that there is something that humans need. They need human contact in order to communicate in a, in a whatever, a subconscious level. In other words, they said that the body naturally does something when they greet somebody else and your body tells you something about the other person that you don't realize. Do you know how that's done? Here, I'll show you. How are you doing today? A handshake. They found that the handshaking of a person, your body tells you a lot about how they feel and how they accept the other person or don't accept by shaking of hands. You can't get that digitally. You can't get the same feels digitally from a handshake. You can't see the person as they are digitally. There's just things that are lost in the mix. And listen, I know right now that we have people watching online. And if you're online this morning, I will say to you, thank you for being a part of Berean Church. Come on, somebody. We have people that are a part of our church family that aren't here. And if you're online with us right now, you've probably seen me and uh, Pastor Kevin on the morning announcements, sharing with you, having fun with you, and all of those things. But I will tell you this, you need human contact. And if you're not getting that, you're missing out. You're missing out on what you can receive from somebody else, and you're missing out on what you can give to somebody else. And if you're not ready to be here, that's totally great. But listen, do you know that's why... Uh, our connect groups are so important because it's a smaller place where you can get to know people and they can get to know you. And listen, listen, it's not just about you, but it's about what you can give to somebody else. And just by being present in a group, you have no idea the words that you can speak to somebody else by just even shaking their hands and saying, I'm so glad that you're here today. You need it. We need human contact. In fact, there's this um, study that was done years ago, and this has been a model that people have used um, for uh, several years. This isn't something new. It's called Dunbar's number. And Dunbar's number was a study that was done about an individual human's ability to maintain stable social relationships. Anybody want to guess how many stable social relationships you can have? Come on, give them to me. Ten. Five. Someone here. One. Over here. Seven. Okay. Here's what Dunbar's number says. Dunbar's number, after a study of research that had been done, says the number is 150 and no more. That's a lot. Right? So, um, 
that study has been used over and over again. In fact, some businesses have adopted that model and said we're not going to have any more than 150 contacts that we're going to work with, right? So this is something that people have built models around. But a recent study that has been done by Swedish researchers developed uh, that repeated Dunbar's analysis using modern statistical methods, right? They learned something, that the average maximum group size often turned out to be lower than 150 people. It said the main problem was that 95% confidence intervals for these estimates were between this, two and 520. Some people could have two, and some people were good way up here. Now, listen, here was their conclusion. The conclusion is it's not possible to make an estimate for humans with any precision using the available methods and data. In other words, no one can say for certain how many people can have the certain number of stable relationships. But that doesn't mean we don't need them, right? I don't know what your number is, and I don't really know what my number is, but I know that we need those. In fact, here's what I think the Bible talks about, about relationships, right? This is what I call the biblical friendship Correlation. I just made that up because it sounds cool. <laughs> Proverbs 18. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Right? So, if you have friends, it helps to be friendly. Right? There's a relationship between the two. Right? But here's some things I want you to gather out of that verse. Number one is that friendships take investment. I bet you knew that. And the greater number of fresh uh, friendships, the more energy you must expense. That makes sense. But the greater number of friendships also means the more relational capital will diminish. In other words, you can only spin so many relational plates. So you have to decide which ones are important. And I'm asking you this morning to consider somebody on the perimeter and make them a part of your relational plates that you're spinning. Relationships are anchor points for people that they use to navigate their life. And so, how many knew this week that um, the uh, software for the FFA went down? How many heard that? It did. It was like this national thing where no flights could go anywhere, and uh, people were stuck for quite a while, and they, f they determined that it was corrupt software and all of that. But so I took a trip several years back to um, Alaska, went up to Kotzebue, Alaska, and it's a place that you just can't find um, unless you have navigation points. It literally just shows up out of the middle of nowhere. There's a runway that's like three blocks long, and this jet, big jet, has to land on it with precision. So we got there, and we're on the runway, and, and um, we, we spent our week, we came back, and we're getting ready for takeoff, and while we're waiting for takeoff, we're like, what is going on? We've been on this plane for an hour, and then finally the, uh, the uh, pilot gets on, and he says, hey folks, we just want to let you know that we're still on the runway, and we're still waiting because the software that operates our, our nav points is down. So what happened this week? 
And he said, so they're still working to get them back up so that we, we can get off the ground. And he said, listen, folks. He said, I just want you to know that we know exactly where we are. The problem is nobody else does. And I'm saying to you, our lives as believers should be an anchor point for somebody else's life. They already have anchor points that are helping them navigate life. And I'm suggesting that we should be one of them. As parents, definitely we're the anchor points, right? And I, you probably already know this, but like your kids are not just ministry, right? It's not just about getting them ready and um, filling them with information from scripture and calling it a day. But your kids desperately want relationship. Do you want to know how I know? It's called 20 years of being in youth ministry. And how many times over and over and over I've seen kids from broken homes, some of the worst things that you could possibly experience, and those same kids, all they wanted was just a relationship with their family. Make sure that relationships that you're spinning priority happens in your house. It's important. You need that. And relationships don't have to equal relatable. You don't always have to relate to somebody else to build a relationship. I've seen people from all ages interact with students, not because they were completely relatable, but because they just sat down with those students and says, tell me about your life. Not sitting down with them, expecting to give and unload what you've memorized and what you've learned over the years. They don't care about that. Do you know what they care about? Is there somebody across the table that's listening to who I am in my life and right now and what I'm going through? When you care about where they are and where they're at, they're going to care a whole lot more about what you have to say and the places you've been. And then in those moments, you can lead them to a healthier place. It doesn't always have to be relatable. You just have to be a caring person. So this is why... Relationships are so important for effective ministry, right? And ministry, I want you to think about, as we talk about it this morning, is broader than the scope of discipleship. We talked about intentional discipleship last week. And when you think about discipleship, I want you to think, discipleship, as we think, is about the discipler and the disciplee, the teacher and the student, the one who is Giving and the one who is willing to receive, right? Now, a disciple isn't somebody that you're just teaching stuff to as in doctrine. It could be somebody that you're just moving up the ladder spiritually. That can just happen by, you know, just letting them rub, rub off like a little bit of you on them. You can move them up the ladder. But here's what I want you to think about ministry. Ministry is loving people no matter what in hopes that the recipient will find hope, healing, and wholeness. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the captive free. Do you know what that is? That's ministry. That's what it looks like. So, there, when I was um, in 
Bible college and early on um, as a believer, this phrase used to come up quite often about this idea saying, are you in the ministry? Or I'm in the ministry. And as I've gotten more experience, I realize that it's, it's more than just one thing. And so I'm going to explain to you kind of three categories that I've, that I've suggested that are out there about what ministry is and to pray about where God wants you to be at in ministry. And here they are. Number one, it's the calling of ministry. I would suggest to you that's vocational. That's a job. That's what I'm doing right now. Right, A pastor, a missionary, a teacher in some capacity. It's a calling that you have. That's what that looks like, all right? Now, so the reason why I'm saying this, and I want to pause here, is in a, in a church body this size, the, there's a high probability that God is calling somebody in here to active vocational ministry. That could be a student. That could be a young adult. That could be someone in their middle ages, or even somebody that's a senior adult. And I'm saying to you right now, if there is something in your life that God is calling you to vocationally, this might be your moment to say yes. We had a missionary here that was here. Um, She was staying in, in one of our houses. And do you know when she went on to the mission field, she went on the mission field like when she was in her late 50s, 60s in the Dominican Republic by herself and did a fantastic work. And I'm telling to you, don't let where you are in this moment determine of saying yes to God for something vocational. And if you need help processing that, Pastor Gary is one of the best people to help you with doing that. He's, he's been the president of our Iowa School of Ministry and can help you engage in that process. So please, pray about it and think about it. Number two is the programs, departmental ministry. This is what most people think about when we think about ministry. Children's ministry, youth ministry, young adults, senior adult, worship arts ministry, hospitality, media and technology, connect group leaders, host home leaders, safety team. Do you know where I have a safety team that's starting back up so you can sign up for that as well if you're, if you're interested in that? And so many more programs. We need that. Then, the third one, the believer. That's lifestyle ministry. And I'm going to focus here for the next few minutes because I think if you get the lifestyle ministry right, it will translate into the other two. Here's some scriptures I want you to think about. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. In another place, no greater love than this than a man lays down his life for his friends. What does that even mean? It means this, that every believer is obligated to minister in some capacity. It also means that every person is laying down a part of their life daily, and the question is, what are you or who are you laying your life down for? Where are you expensing your energy? And third is this, since you are in the ministry, you need a spiritual account to draw out of. It's your job, an expected job, that you need to download Um, things from scripture into your life so that you can give. If your tank is always empty, when those moments happen, you're gonna have very little to draw out of. You need that. I'll never forget um, that I was in a a place where uh, I was at a bookstore and the guy leans over to me and he says, hey, if you could pick one Bible, which one would it be? And I'm like, 
hello. These are like the these are like easy ones. It's like those are ones everyone wants, right? So I had a conversation with him. And in that conversation, he really wasn't looking for a Bible. He was trying to understand. This was an educated man in his 40s who was attending Iowa State who was trying to understand what faith really was. So I was able to help him. But because I knew things out of Scripture, I was able to draw from that. So, we're called. But we're called to create good moments. Do the good that you know to do. Right? That's what Scripture says in James. And so I want you to see a picture of what that looks like. That when you see the story of Saul um, getting anointed by Samuel, he's going out and he's finding, he's looking for his, his father's donkey. He's unable to find him. And a servant says, hey, there's a man of God in the town. Let's go over there and ask him because he's probably going to know. Right? So he goes over there and they find the man of God, Samuel. And here's what Samuel does. Right? He takes him in. Right? And he tells him, don't worry, your, do- your donkeys have been found. Spends the night with them, right? Your stomach's full. They have a night of encouragement. And Saul walks away in his mind thinking, my dad's going to be so proud of me. That's a good moment, right? That, like, we could just stop right there. And if, if Sam, Samuel would have stopped right there, he could have stopped and sent Saul on his way like Saul's thinking life is good. And we need good moments. We need to do good moments, but we should not stop at the good moments, but we should also look for those God moments. Because there was a God moment that Samuel recognized, and here's what he said. He sent his servants ahead of Saul, and he asked Saul to stay behind and stay here for a while, and he gave the message that God had told him to give, and he took the flask of oil, and he poured it over Saul's head, and he kissed him, and he said, the Lord has anointed you to rule her. And as Saul turned to leave Samuel, it said, God changed Saul's heart because Samuel chose to not just stop at the good but to go one step farther and to say God's got a message for you what if we in the good that we're doing looked for opportunities to have God moments in that moment he didn't just change a person's heart he changed the trajectory of a kingdom and when you're talking to people you're not just changing one person, but you're changing the trajectory of a household by simply looking for those moments. And I'm going to tell you how you can do that by praying one simple prayer. When you wake up every day, pray this prayer. Lord, show me somebody who you want me to talk to, to speak to, that I can encourage and I can uplift. And I promise you that will happen. Do you know the first time I prayed it? was the man in the bookstore who turned to me and said, hey, what Bible can I read? That happened. And I will tell you this, if you pray that prayer, you will have God moments. You will have good moments. And listen, the truth is, God will bring people in your path, but here's the, the real truth. They're already there. There are people around you right now that you can reach, that God wants you to reach and invest in. If you'll be relational and build relationships and invest so I want you to think about these last few things about a minister's work a minister's work is to lessen the burden 
My mom, uh, this last two weeks, she uh, had problems with her sewer. Her, her sewer pipe backed up into her house, and it was an awful mess. She called somebody, had them come out and try to fix it, didn't work. Then it, she called somebody again, they came out and tried to fix it, only they made a complete mess. It was one of the worst um, experiences that I've seen her had in her life. I've never seen her so upset. The company, which will remain nameless, came over to her house and they proceeded to um, open the cast iron pipeline. And as they opened it, they destroyed the valve on the, the top where they accessed. And as they opened the valve, instead of clearing out the appliances, they left them as they were and didn't cover them. And the things that go down the sewer were now spilling out across the um, washer and dryer. It was an awful mess. They went down and they scoped the um, sewer and they told her that she had a uh, break in her line and they marked it and told her here's what you need to do and they caused an awful problem in that process and so as, as my mom tried to resolve the problem they, they, they told her a false location and then ended up where she had three holes in her basement now. It was a disaster. Now, she's fixed it, she got another company, all is well. But I was talking to another person who had an experience with the same company name from a different location and swore up and down by them, said it was amazing, great experience. You know, I think you can translate that into the person of a believer or a Christian. There are some Christians that come to a person's house when their life is backed up and they lighten the load. And then there's others who spew sewer stuff all over the place. <laughs> Which one are you? Are you lightening the load? Carrying the burdens? Or are you just making a mess? We should be lessening the burden. We should, a minister's work is to offer work relief. Now, I want you to think about this. If you could pick one person right now, in scripture to be like, which one would it be? Just shout out some names real quick. Paul? Jesus, Jesus. good one, that's, that's good. Anyone else? What's that? David, David. one more. Noah. Noah, okay. So now, we all know the names of scripture, but here's one thing I want you to catch. I've never heard one single person say they wanna be like these people. The 70 elders that Moses appointed to offer relief. When Moses was overworked with all of the problems, he appointed 70 elders to help in the work relief. Um, I've never heard anybody say they wanted to be a part of the 70 who Jesus sent out, right? And all of those people experienced some supernatural events of some kind or another. I've never heard anybody say that. I've never heard anybody say, I want to be like the seven men who were called to help serve, who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom in the book of Acts. I've never even heard anybody say, I want to be Matthias who filled Judas's spot and then you don't know anything about him. Right? And why is that? Because we don't know a lot about those people, but the other is sometimes we want to be known by what we do. It's true. We like that. But here's the truth all of the people who are unknown in Scripture were known by somebody. And if you choose to minister in some kind of capacity, you may not be known in the way that it maybe should be. Like there should be some level of like, hey, good job. 
That may not happen. But you know what? It matters to the people that you're investing in. You're known by them. A minister's work is to work in spite of splinters. Paul said, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And if you're choosing to engage in ministry in your life and reaching people around you and loving people, you're going to get splinters. But I want you to consider it this way. When I was in college and one of my jobs that I did was working as a framer, building houses. And when I built a house like with, um, with the contractors that we were with, like I got splinters all of the time. People got splinters all of the time. But you know what? I never saw one person stop building because of the splinters. They just stopped, took out their utility knife, carved it out, or did whatever they needed to to pull it out. In fact, on the, one of the first days on the job when I was working, I brought my uh, framing hammer with me, and uh, my boss says, he, he grabs my hammer, and he says, let me see it. And he pulls it out, and he takes it out to the street, and he hammers the thing as hard as he can on the street. And then he pulls out his own hammer and starts banging his hammer on the head of the other hammer. Do you know why he did that? Because a brand new hammer on a framing hammer has all of these teeth that are really aggressive for grabbing nails, but if they're not, um, like pushed down and, and dulled out at some capacity, I struck my, my thumb actually on the edge of one of the sharp pieces and it took my, like the top portion of my thumb completely off. He learned some things through his own painful experiences that he was able to translate to me. So sometimes working helps you to um, help other people. And you find that there are other people who are also serving in ministry that can give you some healthy tips along the way. In fact... If you read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, you'll see a strong connection between grace and hardship. Paul is writing uh, to the Corinthians and he's letting them know, hey, I've been helping you out and you're listening to people that are false prophets and false teachers and they're saying all kinds of bad things about me. And he says, I know that I look weak to you, but if I look weak, then so be it. And you can watch that connection into chapter 12 and he says, but when I'm weak, I'm strong. And I'm saying to you, don't let your hurts and your hardships stop you from doing what God has called you to do. But his grace is sufficient. He will give you grace. This last thing I want to give to you that I think could help us here. And I was reading in my devotions last week, and it was out of the book of Genesis. And if we could put up the the verse behind here real quick. Genesis chapter 2. I was reading, and I was reading through my devotion, and I I remember thinking the the thought, I've read these chapters so many times, like, honestly, I'm like, well, I know what's in there. And in Genesis chapter 2, as I'm reading, here was what I came across. Verse 10. As the river water of the garden flowed from Eden... From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it winds through the entire land um, where the gold is. The gold of that land is good, aromatic resin, and onyx is also there. Now, I was reading these verses, and something just jumped out at me, right? It, this incredible verse that I've just like, it's, it's, it, it's mind-blowing, this really 
Small detail. You want to know what it is? It's what's in parentheses right there. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, onyx are also there. That doesn't mean anything to us, right? In fact, most people believe that Genesis and the, the first few books, or the first part of Scripture, was um, given by God to Moses, right? Because nobody was there. And so, if God had downloaded it to Moses, this was post-flood, and people say today, like, the, the geographical locations of these rivers aren't even, like, we probably can't even find them. Where's the gold? So then why is this there? And I would suggest to you that that parenthesis is there to let you know that God cares about every single detail. The things you can see and the things you can't see. He knows. In fact, I read an article about four or five years ago that of a guy who, who studied the stars and he says, if we turned on every telescope and pointed them in every direction right now, do you know how much of the universe that we can see? 5%, 5%, 95% is still unknown. And I would suggest to you that when we think about relationships with people, before we depart, remember the 5% and the 95 that you can't see. God calls us to operate in the 5%, understanding he, he knows the 95. And he's working in a place and in a way that we may not understand. But every, listen, every detail matters to him. If you'll stand with me right now as we worship one more time. I want you just to take a few moments as Pastor Nathan worships. And I want you to ask, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me serve in this idea of relational ministry? If you're here this morning and you have splinters in your life, hurts and wounds that have caused you from engaging in the process, you've stepped back, this is your moment right now and say, I'm choosing to pull those out. I'm choosing health over hurt. Could we do that this morning as we worship? Come on, let's do it. How good is he? Far beyond what eyes could ever see. Yet he stands in front of me. How good is he? He paints a canvas with a million stars. Yet still he holds my heart. Our Father in heaven, the light of salvation. Oh, how good is He? The breath of Almighty before and behind me. Oh, how good is He? 
one last time. Our Father, oh, our Father in heaven, the light of salvation. Oh, how good is He? The breath almighty before and behind me. Oh, how good is He? How good is He? If He never did enough all I ever need. As one spiritual leader said to his student as he was preparing to embark in ministry, he said these words to him. He said, I want you to know that nothing you do will be good enough and everything you do will be picked apart. And he said, and that is okay. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying, God is not expecting you to be perfect. And there will always be people that will criticize what you're doing. And that's okay. But don't stop building. Don't stop loving. Don't stop believing. Because there's somebody else who needs your life to help them. So as we get ready to go this morning, if we could have the uh, text up here behind me. If you'd like to know more about how to get involved here at church, you can text the number 77411-GROW. And uh, we'd love to have somebody connect with you this morning and help you in this process of building better relationships and ministry together. Can we do that this morning? Lord, as we get ready to leave this place, we leave this place with our heads held high knowing, God, that not only do you know the 5% that we can see, but you are fully in control of the 95% that we can't. And we choose to build anyway. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Have a great Sunday.